0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne,
1: truly independent community radio. Gauges issue of power, of hierarchy, of prominence, of sexuality, of race, of class, all those things that have to be spoken together that can never be separated.
2: Richard Watts.
3: Through till midday today on another edition of Smart Arts. Nice to be back in the studio. Last week was great fun, broadcasting live from the National Gallery of Victoria. Uh, NGV International in St Kilda Road. But uh, it's nice to be back in the studio uh, where I'm a little bit more in control of things. The weird thing about an OB is normally here in the studio, I'm sitting here panelling, pushing buttons, so if something goes wrong it's my fault and I'm, I know when tracks end. And when you're doing an OB there's somebody else pushing all the buttons and looking after things for you and there's this moment of kind of like, no, but I, I want to do all the things. So, now I'm back in the studio doing all the things. It's kind of fun. But last week was fun. This week will be fun as well. We're going to be talking comic books with Bernard Calio in about 15 minutes' time. Uh, on the visual arts front, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Christopher Heathcote about the exhibition Discovering Dobell at Tarawara Museum of Art, focused on William Dobell, the painter. Uh, and also, there's a couple of exhibitions on as part of Art Plus Climate, um, and we're going to be talking to Sam Leach and Kylie Stillman about their work on show at Linden New Art, uh, their offshoot at Domain House. Uh, in the uh, the Botanic Gardens, on the theatre front. She said Theatre, independent company, have got a new production called Salt on at La Mama Courthouse. We're going to find out about that a little bit later on in the show. Uh, And also on the performance front, uh, Peter and Bambi Heaven have got a show called The Magic Inside. They are possibly the world's worst uh, magician couple who think they're the best. Uh, And they're performing at the Melbourne Spiegel tent. So that's uh, Peter and Bambi Heaven, a.k.a. Asher Trelevin and Gypsy Wood. Uh, And if you've got kids, then... Stay tuned because I'm going to be chatting with the director of Little Big Shots, Australia's international film festival for kids. Ben Layden will be joining us to talk about the program this year. The festival's on at Acme from today, the 8th through until the 12th of June. All that and more on the show today. Hope you can stick around.
0: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia.
3: <laughs> Bernard
4: Callio, hello, hello, hello. Just clearing my throat there oh, on a on a, um. your guttural Dutch. <laughs> it was good pronunciation. Ah, <laughs> oh, thanks very much. Thanks very much. My Dutch is uh, people are always commenting on it. Uh, <laughs> actually, we should look into Dutch comics at, at some point. Uh, uh, we should. I, I know nothing about them. Nor so. do I. <laughs> I'm so, sure there must be some great Dutch comics out there. Absolutely. Now, Bernard,
3: you join us once a month for it's true. who don't know what this segment is, <laughs> who, who this strange man is, who's kind of... Swanned in. Yep, yep. So uh, once a month uh, for a segment we like to call Drawn Out, a name suggested by a listener, um, uh, in which we talk about comic books, graphic novel, sequential, visual narrative, cartooning and the like.
4: And the like and the associated. And I'm going to start with the associated today because should you be of of a... Of a of a stripe, of of, of an inclination where you think, man, that Thor's hammer in those films, I wish I could actually see it, Thor's hammer. Well, you can. You don't have to go to Hollywood, but you do have to go to Brisbane. <laughs> you do have to go to Brisbane. To <laughs> Quaggoma. I, 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 was, I was about to say you don't have to go to Midgard, but, yeah, you don't have to go oh, to okay. Midgard. You don't go to have to go to Hollywood. You have to go to uh, uh, Thor's, um, Thor's the Thunder God, that is, uh, um uh, Toolshed? No. Kogoma. up uh, at the Queensland Art Gallery Gallery of Modern Art. And they have an exhibition on called "At an Art Gallery folks called Marvel Creating the Cinematic Universe." And you go there and... Well, I haven't been there yet, but, you know, you go there and you just see... that. So, obviously, we're talking about the film series and really it's that they're sort of uh, regarding this as kicking off from the 2008 first Iron Man film. So, that's what they're sort of uh, thinking of as this iteration, I suppose, of the MCU. The Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe. <laughs> Which is a different place to the MCU, the, the Marvel
3: Comics, Comics Universe. <laughs> But uh, to Marvel's credit, this has been a sustained uh, sequence of movie making, none of which have actually been bad. Dread- well, none of which have been dreadful. dreadful. I'd agree. Okay, yes. Um, <laughs> I, the second Iron Man film was pretty rote. Um, but we're now, what, 12, 14 films into this franchise. Really? It's just
4: like a big
3: celluloid comic book series. Everything interlinks, flows one to the other, and lots of other studios are trying to replicate it unsuccessfully.
4: Unsuccessfully, may we add, Uh,
3: because somehow,
4: somehow, who knows how, they've actually captured that that manic uh, uh, Stanley Excelsior sort of. Bananas, sort of feel, you know, of it, which I think of, of which you know, Deadpool sort of, sort of uh, uh, concentrates in the most, dr- most concentrated draft. Because uh, I was very, very sceptical about seeing that. And then my sixteen-year-old son said, "Come on!" And I saw it, and I it was, it's, it's delightful. It's a delightful treat. I think that film. To so come back to the exhibition, yes, let's go back there. There's a, a woman up in, uh, up at the, at Queensland Art Gallery, uh, Gallery of Modern Art, Kagoma, and who revels, revels in the name of Amanda Slacksmith. And Amanda Slacksmith is the curator of this exhibition, which came about because uh, Thor Ragnarok, uh, was shooting up at the Gold Coast, and I oh, know somebody met somebody at a party and said, "Oh, can we bring some of those? Can we put, put some put some of those props in the, uh, in, the um, in the gallery in the gallery?" And uh, clearly, Taika Waititi, uh, who's directing that film or directed, I suppose now directed, directed that directed that post-production. film production post production now, um, said. Yeah, why not? And
3: somehow I suspect he didn't give the <laughs> approval. I suspect the higher echelons at Marvel did. At, at Marvel MCU. But, you know, for, so they do have the Asgardian th-
4: throne room from Thor and Ragnarok, which they needed to move to take out a window at the front of the gallery to fit in because clearly, you know, an Asgardian throne room, it's not, a, it's not just something that you can, you know, it's not a, it's not a small object. Uh, So that's in there. You know, um, uh, Captain America's shield is there. Uh, Iron Man's armor is there.
3: What would attract me to seeing this exhibition go on, go on, is t- the fact that um, sketches, character designs, mm. not uh, rather than the the props themselves, mm. uh, all the behind-the-scenes work that goes into making and designing these works, and that's something that's also on display yes. in the exhibition. So, yes. And look, it's really intriguing to see a major gallery uh, like the Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Art, celebrating pop culture and saying and, – and blurring the divisions between high art and low yeah, art. Yeah, God and bless them. Th- These things are all interconnected and interrelated and what is low art in one decade, Shakespeare, uh, mm, will yeah. 400 will years rise, later in be fact, high art.
4: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it, uh, it looks like a lot of fun and uh, as you were saying, Richard, you know they've got storyboards, they do have comics, their original artwork from you know the 60s uh, and um, and they've got a really good public programme – uh, uh, the, you know, the, as you were talking about a moment ago with uh, Van Gogh, uh, you know, they've got bands up there, Black Cab's playing, but lots and lots of really interesting bands they've got playing. And um, this Sunday, there's a, a Marvel comic swap meet where you bring in your Marvels, you get tokens for them, and then they all the Marvels get I know, thrown into a room like Scrooge McDuck. You just clamber over them and <laughs> redeem your tokens for the as you can tell, I've got quite grandiose sort of visions about how these things. It, I, I think your vision and the reality <laughs> may need some slight adjusting. tweaking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so there's so there's that. Also, okay, so that's the Marvel creating the cinematic
3: universe. It's on up at uh, Kagoma until the third of September. So, if you feel like a trip to Brisbane to yeah. escape the Melbourne winter and to celebrate pop culture and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that could be the exhibition. Okay, okay, the, to visit
4: to, he- to head for.
3: And while you're there, uh, I recommend going to Le Boite Theatre or um, out to the Brisbane Powerhouse. Uh, or uh, and and just or um, catching something that Queensland Theatre are doing previously Queensland Theatre Company some really great work happening in that Brisbane in terms of performance particularly wow. circus as well.
4: Oh, okay, so it could really be part of a a, 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 a program self selected program of, uh, of Look, ac- just activities. T- tweet me and I'll curate. <laughs> sure, sure. That. Is a great idea for a gig. That's a great idea. Uh, anyway, moving on from that idea, if you wanted to go to Sydney next week uh, on Friday, Friday, of course, being June the 16th... I don't, but why? <laughs> well, it's Bloomsday, so you want to treat yourself to something. Um, but if you found yourself in Sydney next 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 Thursday, you, uh, for Friday, you'd go up to um, the Mirabelle Room at the St. James Hotel at 7 o'clock because... Australian Comics Night of Nights the Ledger Awards is on, and Ledger Awards are a really great uh, award system which is which celebrate excellence in Australian comic book making and publishing. So a wonderful uh, uh, undertaking, and uh, there are gold, silver, bronze ledgers for people who've produced a work in the year in the calendar year twenty sixteen, being awarded on uh, on next Friday, next Friday night. So that's the ledgers. Um, I uh, you know declared a. Vi- declared interest. I am a I am a platinum uh, Ledger Award holder for contributions to Australian comics, and um, and so this on uh, next Friday I will be I will be with a tear in my eye handing over my platinum status to the next platinum uh, contributor to Australian comics. Why is a comic book award yeah.
3: named the Ledger Award?
4: Well, it's actually not named after Heath. Heath. Oh. It's named after it's it is a bit confusing. It is named after a man called Peter. Ledger, an Australian uh, comic book maker who went over to Hollywood and he was a very interesting man, actually. He's more like a comic book maker, adventurer, escape artist, a bit like Jim Steranko, if you know Steranko, who is an American comic book artist, who, who was like, man, he's like a fire-breathing comic book artist. So this was our, – our, our Jim Steranko was, was Peter Ledger. And so he ended up over in, in America and, and died too, too early. And so these, these uh, awards have been named in his uh, honour. So that's the alleged... That's the So I'll, I'll bring back some reports of you know who's the platinum, who's right. the platinum next 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 time. But closer to town, closer to our town, closer to Melbourne, uh, let's go to the Emerging Writers Festival, because on the 20th... and I'm really happy that this has been programmed because it gives me an opportunity to bring in a book and show you, Richard, that I talked about last time, uh, Eyes Too Dry by Alice Chipkin and Jessica Tavasoli, and this is the book about depression and it's the con. Conversation book between two um, two women, and the, one of them more of the uh, carer of the person who is really suffering from depression. But it's
3: uh, a remarkable object, as you can and, see, beautifully made, a fascinating. A conversation in graphic form, yes, uh, an exploration of ideas and thoughts and feelings uh, presented as a as a graphic narrative, and subtitled a graphic memoir about heavy feelings. And I like the fact that that notion of heavy feelings is a beautiful phrase because you don't have to... Because that's a great way to, to describe depression and related yes. um, uh, uh, anxieties and feelings and so forth. Literally, thoughts that weigh you down. Yes. yeah.
4: I think it's actually like a very graphic way to describe, uh, you know, in term, not, not as in, ah, you know, full on, but actually just really gives you an image mm. for it. Yeah. So uh, the, uh, Alice and Jessica will be in conversation with Ronnie Scott, uh thinker about comics writer about comics himself uh as part of the emerging writers festival at six thirty at readings in carlton on the 22nd of june so that's uh this fortnight from today um so i really recommend that i think it'll be a fascinating conversation and, uh, and, and I, I love it because to, to, I think it will be about comics as process, not just as process of making comic, but also process of how do I understand my life? I'm going to make a comic in order to try and get some grasp on it. I love that. Uh, and so, and I think I'll just leave with, you know, we don't talk a lot about the, uh, the, the, the the Twitter world, although we did talk about it a moment ago uh, off air. But there is a new tweeting person and they are called President Supervillain. <laughs> and so President Supervillain takes uh, the words of a well-known American president... Uh, and places them in the mouth of Red Skull. Now, Red Skull, for those of you who don't know, and we're just tying this conversation back into the uh, to the to the beginning, is an old foe. In fact, maybe the oldest foe of Captain America. And this is a rather hilarious uh, um, uh, take on on the words of of the leader of the Free World. And uh, he placing his his um, statements, many and various as they are into the mouth of a red skull faced uh, supervillain supervillain uh who is constantly uh, sort of snarling at poor old captain america so even in the, in so, itself, so
3: what's the twitter account called
4: it's called president supervillain or prez supervillain and um, uh, you know, uh, Red Skull. I'm just opening that
3: Twitter account. Okay. as we speak. as we
4: speak here, we are. this is it, folks. This is as good as it gets. This is live Twitter opening on so, radio. So
3: not just um, quoting them, but he's uh, he takes real Trump quotes uh-huh. and photoshops them into comics, into the
4: comic, into the into the speech balloon, into the speech balloon. So so Red Skull is, is really saying these things. You know, he's and he's and you know, it's a beautiful metaphor because he's fighting Captain America. He's actually fighting. The uh, truth, justice, and the American, well, man Or oh, oh, I guess that's that's uh, that's Superman stuff, but you know that's yep. that's Captain America as well, eh? So yeah, I recommend that because there's some <clears throat> there's some boffo boffo to be had. Uh,
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I've just opened a panel at random, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. uh and uh, yep. So in classic. Uh, comic book format, you've got your Red Skull throwing his head back, hands in the air, screaming maniacally. Yeah, yeah, sure, um, sure. At least seven dead and 48 wounded in terror attack and Mayor of London says there is no reason to be alive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, which is a Trump quote, taking the Mayor of London out of context. And, yeah. and yes. So he's taking, so, yeah, t- yep. Trump Trump tweets, I think they
4: actually are. The Trump, Trump tweets whacking them into uh, Red Skull's mouth. So I think yep. this is a very excellent, you know, we, let's, let's institute a new uh, segment within the drawn-out segment, which is, my gosh, I'm glad they invented the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and this is uh, instalment number one. Thank you very much, Richard Watts. Bernard
3: Kelly, we will catch you in a month's time talking more comic books, news and stuff. See you then. Bye. Art. Art. Attack.
5: Attack. 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 Attack.
1: Attack.
3: Every fortnight, approximately, except occasionally when we're doing a special outside broadcast from the NGV, uh, the Art Attack team either individually or collectively come in to talk to us and uh, critique and discuss work they have seen in galleries around town. Good morning, Ace stuff.
5: Oh, good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. <sighs> My gosh. Um, yes. So last week was
3: fun. Thank you for joining us at the NGV.
5: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm obviously still sh- shell-shocked. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was great to kind of be in the space and talking about the work. Uh, seeing the work so early in the morning as well, kind of in that pristine, blank, empty gallery space was was kind of peculiar. Um, reminded me of this Alex Danko talk I saw years ago. And, uh, you know, he you know, hypothesizes it was like kind of this fourth year welcome to art kind of talk and and says, is art... Art if there is no human beings on the planet, like what separates it in like a Cthulian sense from, you know, rocks or um, stratas of geological matter or... Yeah, so that was kind of nice. And in that gallery space, looking at those... those you know quote masterpieces uh by quote a genius it's you know they kind of disappear into the walls and quote male genius <laughs> <mentioned it. laughs> yes oh my gosh don't even get me started on the masculine this morning i'm t- not in the mood for it
3: <laughs> well let's talk about something you are in the mood for <laughs>
5: um yeah painting painting and uh, ceramics at neospace Neospace Space is um, a little space attached to a, a framers and, and printers in Collingwood on Campbell Street. Um, do you have the address? There? I think it's Five seven or seven twelve Campbell yep. Street, Collingwood. Yep. Um, and it's it's a little bit out of the way, but not that far. If you're already you know in the area seeing Gertrude, uh, maybe popping around the corner to Tristan Koenig or. Um, what else is in that space? Bus projects as well. Uh, so definitely achievable, but it's a, it's a fantastic solo exhibition by Enrique torchez Anderson uh, called Morphologies, and um, it's what I think is becoming this this scene of neo-post-internet modernism. Um, Did you just make that up? I kind of have been working on it for a little while and I spoke to Cass, who's at Neospace, who works there as well, about it. Because it's it's definitely a trend that's occurring. Say it again. (laughs) Post-internet neo-modernism. It needs some refining. It's got to be a little bit catchier than that, right? It's got to be like, it's got to be like pomo. It's got to roll off the tongue, have a little bit of a hook. But, um, but it's definitely definitely a thing even if we haven't uh, you know
1: and hel- it held mean? it down and
5: beaten it yet. Um, I think it means kind of revisioning abstraction um, re-looking at uh, works that solely rely on form and shape and colour and composition. But through that lens that, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a prior movement in art history. It's had its day and it's kind of been, it was long elongated to, um, to, to foyers and hotels and considered boring. It's the elevator music of, of, of the art world for, for decades or was. But now I think a lot of artists, especially since you know the passing, or I guess, uh, since the the peak, the pinnacle of provisional painting, and and now that we have um, material painting as well, which which Ty and I love and have gushed about before, uh, suitable, suitably gushed. And, um, and now it's kind of getting this, this second life, these um, abstracted works or the idea of, you know, solid composition and, um, you know, celebrating forms and shapes and colours uh, as, as almost portraits, as less an abstraction and more portraits of ideas or concepts. Uh, so he has a mixed exhibition of both these sculptures that he's produced, uh, ceramics, vessels in forms and, um, and paintings, paintings on ply, really modest sized as well. Um, I think I sent you through a few images and even, even while I was looking at the photos that I'd taken yesterday, it's easy to imagine them being kind of monstrous or, you know, the grand scale works, but they really are quite small, like quite humble in a sense, um, huggable even. You could wrap your arms around them, you know, they're, they're, they're about the about, size of your torso.
3: They're what, 50 centimetre, approximately 50 centimetres yeah. by 40 centimetres. Yeah, yeah.
5: yeah. Um, and I should say very affordable. <laughs> I I almost walked out with one because it wouldn't have even dinted, oh, it, would have, it would have dinted my pay packet, but I wouldn't have been scrounging for rent this this uh, this fortnight if I had have picked one up yesterday. So I do recommend not all of them are sold, but there are a few red dots around the gallery space. Um, so if you are looking for a great work, do pop in at least for the, um, my particular interest was in the paintings, but that's just my specific um, desire. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? Uh The ceramics I should say the ceramics is interesting because the ceramics are all titled uh all but one so kind of untitled bulbous form shimmer vision cappuccino um and they're they're both you know titles that accurately describe the work but uh you know also, also a little bit poetic of course and in their sense as I was talking to Enrique yesterday I had the pleasure of speaking to him which is really nice because it's always good to goof out and nerd out a little bit with somebody else that has similar interests um yeah he was he was kind of speaking on this about this idea of like sometimes there's there's more complexity in in the simplistic you know if it's not broke don't fix it the wheel still turns there's no need to reinvent it and looking at these ceramic forms these vessels it's you know 100% true and it's, it's very obvious you you need something that's you know it's it's womb-like large um not imposing but solid real there's you know a weight to them
3: yeah if you want to see the artworks that Ace is talking about, uh, you can go to www.neospace.com.au and click on the Morphologies tab to see the exhibition, which is on now until the 25th of June. And, yeah, there's a sample of both paintings and ceramic works on the website, including uh, the the classic uh, exhibition uh, installation view. Oh, the installation so, view so is amazing. You can see the white cube <laughs> and the works, kind of uh, the way they're situated in the space. And then, yeah, some of the individual uh, paintings and ceramic works that Ace is
5: discussing. That's that's another thing, walking into that space and, uh, you know, you get a teaser of this in that installation photograph on the website, that installation shot is... um, And it looks great in that shot. It looks amazing as a photograph. But walking into that space in the flesh, uh, you know, and being assaulted by that field, that scene of, you know, the paintings on the wall and the ceramics on these... um, How would you describe those plinths? They're... they're very quite you imagine them in a
3: minimalist apartment with yeah. a, a small flower arrangement on them <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah yeah they're um they're, they're tasteful they're not white cubes they're not the classical white cube plinths um But yeah, it's, it's both, it was both intimidating and, and, and rapturous to walk into that space yesterday afternoon, especially after trekking around in the cold kind of all day and feeling rather depleted and sorry for myself, but yeah, walking into that space and seeing that view, you know, Caspar David Friedrich kind of wander over the sea of fog and it lifts and there's a veil of sunshine. Um. I had a very hashtag that's so Melbourne moment as well. After I left the exhibition, I came across a street poet who, you know, has, he was busking with his poetry. You could give him a couple of dollars and he would churn out a a little poem on this antiquated typewriter that he was punching away at very, uh, you know, staccato like. And um, so I flicked through my phone and I showed him a couple of images from the exhibition and I spoke briefly about, you know, wanting the poem to be, about colors and shapes and forms in in a purest sense, and maybe loosely about mathematics being amorphous and you know untang- intangible. Um, but then he turned out this poem, and I was I was so sad. He turned out this poem, just about it was so anthrocentric, You know, it was just really human orientated about at the human experience of walking around the gallery and catching eyes of. I've got it in front of me of somebody else looking at paintings and having a little human moment, a human connection. I was like, oh, that's gross. Not what you wanted. Not exactly what I mentioned or what I showed you, but uh, thanks for that over-romanticised vision. Morphologies by Enrique Toches-Anderson
3: on until the 25th of June at Neo Space Gallery. And you've also been up to Gertrude Contemporary for the final yes. Gertrude
5: show. We, oh, my gosh.
3: We talked about this briefly last week, but I think we should revisit it. given yeah. it that it is, It's a significant show. It's the it's, very it's a, last uh, exhibition, a, a group exhibition, reflecting on the history of Gertrude yeah. Contemporary at 200 Gertrude Street Fitzroy.
5: It's it's a fantastic show to kind of so like you can never summarize that many years and that many artists and that many works, um, but it's it's a fantastic I guess large sample of of artists and works, um, and and there's a few really you know in a positively romantic sense beautiful works like John Campbell's yeah flag is hanging from the ceiling and uh, I didn't even notice it at first I saw the the name label and it's hanging above a very early painting by him from 1986 guitar player um, and it's kind of pre his his cut out so you want to be a rock and roll star which was in the 90s I think um, so, you know, his ideas in their simplest form, you know, this black silhouetted figure playing their guitar and, and above them, the yeah flag hanging and these works kind of spanning across 30 years. Um, that was a really beautiful moment in connection to the Melbourne art scene. Uh, Noriko Nakamura's work is incredible. It's this site specific installation where she's actually removed part of the wall, part of the, uh, the Gertrude wall to reveal a prior wall of Gertrude's. So at one stage when they had that renovation, they just, you know, put up some more studs and put up some more plasterboard on top of the pre-existing wall. And what she's done is remove that to reveal the wall underneath that would have housed or or shown or hung those works by John Campbell in the early years on. And um, yeah, and and that was like this amazing kind of excavation and archeology span of sorts in the gallery space. We,
3: we should just say that the exhibition that 's on in that space at the moment is called "The End of Time, the Beginning of Time."
5: yes, yeah, and you know that work especially is is beautifully poetic and connects to the the theme and the title of the exhibition uh, damp 's punchline is a lot of fun it 's a documentation of an installation and performance that they they conducted at Gertrude Contemporary in one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine in which the artists present this this big kind of hollywood sign version i guess of of their collective name damp and then they proceed to you know quote have a punch-up um in front of it and and start this fight in the gallery space and it just plays it's it's so great and cheeky because you know it's disenfranchised and plays on that idea of the romantic drunken uh impassionate artist um but you know is also really absurd and and kind of ridiculous, and you can see members of the crowd looking at each other, not sure if it's real or fake, or where's the boundaries here. Oh my gosh, so intense! Uh, and that work is also simultaneously on at NGV at the moment in their um, every genius eye, every brilliant eye, the '90s exhibition up on level two at NGVA. So if you're feeling like a little bit of deja vu, uh, that's that. That would be why multiple works across multiple sites, even though it's um, you know over 10 years in the making. Yeah. So at the
3: end of time, the beginning of time, the final exhibition at Gertrude Contemporary in its current location before it relocates further north, uh, curated by Mark Fury, the artistic director of Gertrude Contemporary, and closes very soon. It finishes this weekend on the 10th of June. Hmm. So if you haven't been along yet, this is pretty much your last
5: do it. couple of days. Uh, Don't delay. Yeah. yeah.
3: To get in and see it and to farewell. Uh, 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy.
5: Mm. Yeah. Um, while you're in the area as well, Seventh Gallery has a, a suite of shows open until the 16th of June. Um, Movable Measures by John D. Keane and Kaya Barry. In the Project Space, Sarah Ujmara uh, with space outer, and personal, uh, space, outer and Personal. And in Gallery 2, Gabriel Hell Lomax with Transformed Surfaces. Um, and... If you do make it down to Meospace, which as mentioned, highly recommend you do, stop in by bus uh, and see in Gallery 1, Basil... Oh, I always have trouble with this. I'm so sorry, Basil. Basil Papacidius. Pap- Pap- Did I get there? No, I didn't. I messed that up. <laughs> he, can, he can just harass me on Facebook Messenger about that later. Unseasonal work by Charlie Sofo and Grey by Sam Patterson. A Hole in the Head by Athia Everard. And Reminder by Haruka Sora. Lots to see. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Gertrude's where it's at. Collingwood, Fitzroy. Pop down.
3: Go and see a range of galleries and a range of shows. Ace, we'll catch you in a fortnight's time.
5: We'll see you then. Thanks for
3: coming in.
2: You're listening to a podcast from
0: Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
3: My next guest for the morning joins me in the studio. Ben Layden is the festival director for Little Big Shots, Australia's international film festival for kids, now in its 13th year. Ben, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Pleased to be here. Your festival opens tonight, so I'm glad you could get in.
6: Yes, yes, it's been uh, all hands on the wheel leading up to tonight. It's uh, been a big push this year, so uh, it's looking really good. So, it's a festival for kids. Uh, What ages are we talking about, roughly? Our age range is from 2 to 12. Okay, so how do you make a film for a 2-year-old? That's an interesting question. I... I, uh, I ponder that one every year when I'm programming it. I think uh, I always try and remember that our audience is not only the kids themselves, but it is also the parents. So the challenge for me when I'm programming for kids that young is to create a sense of movement, colour, but also some underlying themes so that the... uh, The parents can stay awake.
3: (laughs) (laughs) An important part, which I'm sure the parents will be grateful for afterwards as well. Now, one of the other things that I know Little Big Shots has done over the years, it's not just films for young people, but uh, films by young people as well. What's the youngest age of a filmmaker who's got work in the festival this year?
6: Yes, well, this year it's a wonderful little film uh, by uh, Nicholas, Nicholas Albanus, Oh, no, Gilbert. No, he had some help from his dad, Gilbert Albanese, and it's called Trains and Trams dot, dot, dot in miniature. So uh, young Gilbert was four and uh, he made a a little stop motion about his train set. Fantastic. Mm. Mm. So I really like the idea that this
3: is a festival that can not only introduce children, as we said, from uh, 2 to 12 to a diversity of filmmaking, so expand their horizons beyond, I don't know, the latest Disney superhero movie or whatever it may be. But can, uh, so set them off on, a, on a, a journey of becoming a cinephile, but also set them off on a journey of becoming filmmakers themselves.
6: That's a big part of what we do, I think. It's, uh, it's about inspiring uh, young people's imaginations, not only about filmmaking, but of course many of the kids who submit films to us tell us that the reason they did so is because they saw a screening last year. So that's a big part of what we do. And, of course, the, the film medium the technology is so available now that kids can make films very much more easily than they did in the past. Well, I
3: imagine for a four-year-old, for Gilbert, was it?
6: Uh, Gilbert, yeah, yes. Gilbert could probably just borrow Dad's phone and before you know
3: it, bang, put a video together and I quite are. possibly be more accomplished at uh, <laughs> using some of the technology
6: than I would be. Absolutely. Uh, look, over the time that I've been at Little Big Shots, I've seen a an extraordinary change in the way that the films being made by children are, are coming to us a lot of the kids who are submitting films these days really seem to have an innate knowledge of the technology the medium uh, the language so they really are digital natives it doesn't mean that of course uh, every film that gets submitted by a young person is going to be a masterpiece I think we had 400 odd this year from kids So um, and we, we only screen 23 this year I think it is
3: How do you find the right balance between presenting films by kids and presenting films for kids and films for kids that really do tell um, multiple stories and present multiple views of the world?
6: again it's it's an interesting challenge that that's proposed every year to me i uh, I think the mix is is really what we're known for uh We want to put films out there that are at the uh the top notch films uh, uh, acclaimed award winning filmmakers films made by very young kids and also films made by emerging filmmakers as well so it's that spectrum which I think is important for a little big shot session. And so that when you come and see one of the sessions, you're getting a bit of everything, if you like. So there's that... uh, Yeah, that's at play every time you come along to the festival.
3: And so there's 82 films in the festival this year and we're talking about uh, stop-motion animation, computer animation, live-action films, documentary as well. Uh, Features and shorts or mainly just short films?
6: Well, we did screen a feature in the lead-up and I think that that's one of the big... Uh, that's one of the big challenges for us in the years to come. I think that if once we look at expanding the festival further, we really would like to look at screening features as an integral part of the festival. So, yeah, this year I had a a, a film called Odd Squad, which was uh, about some kids' secret agents. It was a a feature film, Canadian feature film, developed from a TV show. Uh, And there's a a, a big uh, feature presentation we're going to do in about a month or so's time. But, yeah, in years to come, I think what Little Big Shot's audiences can expect to see is features within the actual festival itself. So keep an eye out for that. So talk us through some of the highlights
3: at this year's festival.
6: Well, uh, one of the longest films in the festival is a film called Stickman, which is by Magic Light Pictures. And that's another one of these adaptations of Julia Donaldson's work. So the Gruffalo, Gruffalo's child, et cetera. So, yes, they made uh, a uh, another one of her books and it's voiced by Martin Freeman, narrator Jennifer Saunders. So that's, that's going to be a big hit and plays in session four, which we think is definitely going to sell out that one. Probably one of my favourites as well is this... Amazing three D version of uh, Adventure Time. So uh, Cartoon Network commissioned a very young filmmaker who's taking the world before her, Christian Lepore, and uh, and she made a a three D version of the cartoon, and it it looks gorgeous. It really is. It's called Bad Jubbies, and yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> if I know what that actually means, but
3: <laughs> so Ben. For you, obviously, watching uh, hundreds of films to curate the festival, for you, what makes a good film for
6: children? Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly a very tricky one. Um, well, I, I think when when we, I'm looking at, at films, and as you say, hundreds, if not thousands, during the year, I, I'm looking for something a little bit different. So, of course, as you point out, uh, kids can go along to the cinema and they can see the latest Pixar, the latest Disney film coming out and... They pretty much know what they're going to get, so, so do the parents. Uh, I think we're looking for something that's probably going to surprise people a little bit. So they might think that they know what Little Big Shots is, but uh, every time they come along to a session, I would expect that they, they might come away having seen something they didn't expect.
3: Now, I'm particularly intrigued by the by the, the programming of documentaries into a, a festival like this because yep. documentaries... Uh, particularly the, the wave of documentaries we've seen released into cinemas, say, over the last 15 years, have really recaptured the popular imagination, the idea of documentary as entertainment and mm. rather than as what people perhaps used to think of documentaries as dry but slightly worthy. Uh, how do you make a good documentary for kids and are the kind of documentaries you're programming at Little Big Shots um, – is an important part of their programming to provide a window into the world of an experience that an Australian child might not have.
6: I, I think that the docos are certainly a big part of that. Um, again, they'll have some of the the aspects of that that quirkiness that we'd see in the rest of the programming. Uh, one of my favourites in this year's uh, festival is is a, a Dutch doco, and and the, the Netherlands make some of the best. Uh, documentaries aimed at children. It's called uh, A Cow in the Wrong Body about uh, a young teenage girl who her family can't afford to to buy her a horse. So she decides she's going to learn how to ride a cow. <laughs> and uh, the footage is fantastic. The, the music is, is just perfect. And I think... It it brings a, a whole spectrum of different ideas into play. Of course, there's there's uh, issues to do with uh, economic disadvantage, but also her creativity and determination, and it really just is is quite a, a beautiful blend there, which which brings it all together and presents it for a young mind in in not a, a, a worthy, as you say way but just as a, a a neat little story that has some under underpinning themes so yeah if you've just
3: tuned in, we're talking to Ben Laden, who's festival director of Little Big Shots, Australia's international film festival for kids, which opens today and runs through until Sunday?
6: Or we Monday. go until Monday because it's the Queen's, Queen's birthday, birthday long, long weekend. weekend. That's right.
3: Yes. I try to mentally do the maths in my head. So running yeah. from uh, today the 8th through until Monday the 12th of June at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image at Federation Square. Now, Ben, for people listening who might be thinking oh, maybe I could make a kid's film, whether they be, whether it's the, I don't know, the seven-year-old sitting at home Mm -hmm. uh, right now or somebody who's sitting at home who's perhaps experimented with films before and has not thought about branching out into making films for kids. What advice would you give them?
6: Well, you can start anywhere, really. Uh, Basically, uh, as we were talking about earlier, just grab... uh uh, grab mum or dad's iPhone and, and have a play with it. I, as long as they say it's okay, uh, that is a a perfect way to start these days. But, um, I mean, that's where it begins. Uh, where it ends uh, could be with a film like Journey, which is this year's emerging artist winner. Had, uh, young RJ was, was 17 when he started and, and his film is basically initiated by him collecting stock images from NASA and then taking those images and animating them into a kind of ode to 2001. (laughs) And uh, it is the most extraordinary film I've seen by a young person in the six years I've been at the festival. it's just remarkable. Um, it's for the bigger kids, that one, but I guess that that shows you where the the journey can end is that uh, messing around with an iPhone and, and just taking some footage uh, can take you to a point where you're um, making something Kubrick-esque. If you want more information about Little
3: Big Shots, Australia's international film festival for kids, on from today through till Monday, please. Uh, focused at Acme but there are sessions at Art Play and one or two other venues?
6: Uh well not the, this year Art Play's pushed back a little bit. Uh, they're going to they're going to go off in November. Okay. Uh, so it's all at Acme and I would say to people don't leave it till Monday because uh, that's when things go a bit crazy and everybody tries to rush in to get to the sessions. Uh, so, yeah, book in for, for Saturday or Sunday, I think. You can actually get tickets on, on the Friday that for the school sessions as well if you're so inclined, although... They're down to the last sort of 20 or so tickets in those ones. Uh,
3: and we should also say that there's a virtual reality workshop on Sunday, a two-hour workshop. Is uh, mm-hmm. that booked out yet or are there still tickets like Uh that?
6: Our friends at ACME are running that one. There's only 30 places in that. So uh, I, th- I think that one's close to booked out, but you could check in at acme.net.au and see how they're going with that one. That one looks like a a great event. It's for the family, and uh, I think everybody can get involved with it. It's in Studio One. Great.
3: So Little Big Shots, Australia's International Film Festival for Kids, on from today through till Monday uh, at... The Australian Centre for the Moving Image, ACMI at Fed Square. Jump online, full details, uh, including lists of all the films that are screening at
6: www.littlebigshots.com.au. Ben Layton, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And just uh, one final point. We still have some tickets for the opening tonight, which has a a costume uh, competition. So come down dressed as a superhero or or a a giant chicken and we'll see you there.
0: (laughs) You're listening to
6: a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
3: My next guest has joined us in the studio. Dr. Christopher Heathcote is the curator of an exhibition called Discovering Dobell" on a Tarawarra Museum of Art uh, until the 13th of August and also the author of a book published by Wakefield Press called uh, Discovering Dobell Also. So, uh, Christopher, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. So, people may be familiar with Dobell's work, perhaps because of a particular scandal in the the history of art in Australia, a contested image that was claimed not to be portrait, but caricature at one point in time. But he's a much more significant artist than just that one portrait.
7: Yes, but... Um For those listeners who know nothing about Doe Bell, we have something happened in Australia that didn't happen anywhere else in the world is that actually we finished up having a legal case uh, which went into the courts over modern art and it was actually heard in the courts and a whopping great dispute took place and it was to try and prevent the uh, Art Gallery of New South Wales acquiring a modern picture and awarding um, a substantial prize to an artist for a modern picture. Nowhere else in the world did modern art finish up in the courts. But the wonderful thing is it happened here, Australia, at the end of the world, that's if we don't include New Zealand, <laughs> and modern art won. won. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on the one
3: hand, it depresses me that Australia kind of <laughs> fought a court battle over modernism. But at the same time, the flip side of that... But it's wonderful. It, it won. <laughs> it, won the, it won, which is wonderful. And it also meant that suddenly the average person
7: in the street was hit, because this became a, a cause celeb. It was, people were, were talking about the merits of art. More than that. I mean, 10% of the population of Sydney went and visited the art gallery just to see that one picture. But the uh, news travelled very, very quickly. I think part of the reason why it was such a fuss is the Second World War was taking place. Um, People had heard about it and were talking about it over in India. On the Kokoda track when people were fighting in the jungle, um, as people were turning up to relieve and support troops, they were asking, have you seen a photograph of this picture that we've heard about? (laughs) (laughs) So you've got diggers in the jungle arguing over modern art and wanting to see what the
3: picture looked like. (laughs) This this could be... I'm I'm having mental images now that could be a film or a TV series. Oh, yes. (laughs) So for you, why is um, Dobel such a significant artist? Beyond this particular incident and its impact on Australian art history, why does he matter as an artist?
7: Well, uh, the situation is that... Let's face it, we're living in Melbourne and we get all the time shoved at us and we hear all the time about Heidi, about the Reed Circle, Nolan, uh, Boyd, Blackman, Tucker, all of that circle. But there were things happening in Sydney at the same time. And in Melbourne here, we don't actually hear very much about what was going on outside Melbourne. It's almost as if there's sort of one narrative, to use the Malcolm Turnbull phrase, there's one narrative at the moment and it's all centred at Heidi. Well, there's actually another narrative. There's another narrative for every city in Australia. And uh, I'm fascinated, I've, this is the second show I've done, which has looked at what the narrative is in Sydney. Um, And, of course, in Melbourne, there's no court case. In Sydney, there's a whopper which spreads right around the world. A lot of people hear about it. Uh, I'm interested in Tucker as well because some of the issues that get raised in Melbourne um, are taking place in his art and he resolves them a very different way. In particular, you'll find that uh, uh, with Dobell, I mean Dobell, with Dobell... The issues about uh, realism, and when we talk about realism, we're talking not just about figurative painting, but showing real people. Everyday life is what is the big issue for him. The everyday Australian is what is the big issue for him in the uh, late 1930s and 1940s.
3: Which I imagine would have ruffled feathers because that notion of um, trying to present an idealised view of the world uh, and paint high society. Or, yep, yep, yep. Uh, for example, the, the images of the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge painted around that time, which are representative of, look, Australia springing to the future grand ideas. Did people want to see that rather than see images of, um, I don't know, uh, shipyard workers, for example? Lord. Well,
7: don't forget, too, that, I mean, we're talking about a period when the Second World War's on because there's heightened nationalism and it not only it has to, it has to be extremely positive and we have to sow certain things that are respectable. Now, in that particular um, exhibition that caused all the fuss when he entered three works in the Archibald Prize, he put in three pictures that were unspeakable um, and that was part of the rumpus. He put in a portrait of uh, a very famous journalist who was absolutely loathed by both sides of politics and in both upper and lower houses. Uh, And the portrait was of this particular journalist, but the journalist is reclining and shown as an Australian intellectual. He put in the portrait of Joshua Smith. Smith is shown as himself, but also it's meant to represent uh, an Australian uh, artist who is dealing and living in a Philistine culture. Know someone who's putting up with the crap all the time, and uh, this is part of the reason why he was attracted to to uh, Smith. He could see the way that Smith was treated, but the way that Smith was able to sort of stand up and withstand the rubbish that was thrown at him on the street. Sometimes when he walked along, the other picture he put in was the Billy Boy, which is a painter, uh, which is a painting of just um, a bloke, the the average bloke, you know, who. Works with a road gang or whatever. In his particular case, he was working with a gang, and he was the bloke who just boiled up the tea. There he is, um, massive beer gut, in in a sweaty singlet, a dirty singlet, covered with tats, gap toothed grin, smiling out at you with a dirty, sweaty um, beret uh, beret sort of hanging off his head, smiling out. And when it was shown in the outgo of New South Wales, it was actually nicknamed the Yob. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've got these three pictures of that are absolutely. Unspeakable, because hanging around the rest of the gallery, uh, you know, medical specialists, members of the judiciary in their robes. The great and the good. Generals, uh, socialites, the whole. Yes, the great and the good, the superior people. And Dobell turned around and took common people, absolutely dirt common, um, and treated them seriously as objects of portraiture but didn't didn't fancy them up and clean them up, showed them with all the perspiration and the tats. (laughs) (laughs) And he won a prize. (laughs) A very contested prize.
3: (laughs) Now, the exhibition, Discovering Dobell, which is on, as we said, at Tarawarra Museum of Art until the 13th of August, uh, you're focused on three main periods of of Dobell's life in, in this exhibition. The early years in London, the Sydney portraits, and then after the court case and the scandal... Nervous breakdown, yep. retires to uh, to to uh,
7: Lake- Wongi, Wongi, Wongi Wongi on Lake Macquarie. Wongi Wongi, I don't know. On Lake-, Lake Macquarie. <laughs> I've heard it pronounced so many different ways.
3: And then after after that breakdown, he begins to paint landscapes, and including a period where he then goes to Papua New Guinea, and yes, makes there. he goes to New and, Guinea. And so there's a third stream of this mm. exhibition that's painted on those landscapes. Talk to us about why break you, you've broken the the exhibition up into essentially these three sections of his life to illustrate three periods in in his life and in history.
7: It was a case of looking at the work and trying to th- see where the strengths lay, identifying where his strongest work was, uh, and then focusing on those. Uh, with the early work too, I mean um, he spent, it's not re- realised sort of people think of him as an Australian artist. But, you know, he, he won a major prize and then went off and sta- uh, lived in Britain for nine years. Part of the reason it was that length of time is the Depression came along and he was stony broke and couldn't afford to get back. <laughs> he couldn't afford to pay. It was like a num There are a lot of artists who were stuck overseas because of the Depression. They couldn't raise the money to get home.
3: Okay. Now, as well as the exhibition itself, uh, you've also written an accompanying book, which has been published by Wakefield Press, who are based over in South Australia. Yeah. Um, what? I mean, curating an exhibition is a major, a major undertaking. Writing a book is a major
7: undertaking. Why on earth do two at once? I've done it. This is the second time I've done it. You just do it. Glutton <laughs> <laughs> for punishment? It, no, it's making sense. You know, the the book accompanies the exhibition. Yeah. Um, and does that then
3: also mean that the book you can more uh, clearly and articulately put an, an argument forward which can, people will have to create for themselves if they're
7: looking Explained at the Explain a lot more. And in the book, for example, I um, uh, flush out where the ideas are coming from and so forth. See, traditionally art historians and museums and curators tend to... Um, they tend to sort of treat artists as if they're always looking at great grandmasters and, uh, you know, they're looking at Rembrandt or Rubens or whoever. And what I talk about and what I've done as in the exhibition and refer to in the book is that, no, Dobell was looking at all sorts of people and all sorts of things, and in particular I show that he paid serious attention to London crime novels in the late 1930s and London crime novels fuel some of those pictures. Yeah, I'm intrigued. <laughs> Now,
3: there's also um, a parallel exhibition out at Tarawara, I think, drawing from their collection of artists
7: from Dobell's own circle as well. Yes. Uh, Well, Dobell lived in King's Cross. He actually lived directly above King's Cross, uh, a bank on the corner of King's Cross that was overlooking King's Cross. Uh, He was in one of those buildings where there was a bank below, but it was all artist studios above. And he was in the centre of the King's Cross Bohemia, and there were buildings all around. So there were um, uh, that had other artists in them. Uh, you find that Donald Friend was a friend who lived three doors away. Uh, Sally Herman and uh, Elaine Haxton were further along. Dri- Drysdale was further along. It's just there were a cluster of people around there. So the exhibition sort of talks about the friends, the circle, this cluster of people that all lived. Uh, along a couple of streets and they were friends. And they were friends for a very long time. Many many of them had been been together with Dobell and had been friends in London. Uh, When they eventually got back to Australia, they finished up all living uh, side by side and on top of each other. Look, everyone knows about this that Artists tend not to have isolated studios. You get a bunch of people will be in one building together. They cluster, they form co And um, And uh, so, for example, uh, Donald Friend was a very close friend of, of Drysdale's. Uh, Godfrey Miller is in the show, and we've got some Godfrey Miller works and whatever. He met Dobell actually in classes and life classes. The two of them were studying life drawing together, and then they became lifelong friends. Um, El- Elaine Haxton, another story related there. Um, uh, uh, Margaret Preston met him, and they finished up. They had a show, an, an exhibition together, a joint exhibition. We've got also in the uh, thing some of the pictures in the show belonged to some of the artists originally before we got hold of them. Um, one of the chief paintings in the show used to be the uh, be the property of Russell Drysdale. It was his favourite dobel. So to come back
3: to our earlier point, this is again a way to uh, to present another narrative. To, to show us the Sydney milieu yes. of that time yep. and that interconnected sense of artists working, being inspired yeah. and so forth.
7: In Melbourne, we talk about Heidi, a circle of artists uh, and so forth. In Sydney, there's actually the King's Cross Bohemia.
3: What about what was happening in Brisbane and Adelaide at the time?
7: Brisbane and Adelaide, two more further stories.
3: Uh, well, have to be a future <laughs> exhibition and perhaps a future well, book to a Well, You want to fund it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Discovering Dobell is on until the 13th of August at Tarawara Museum of Art, which is, if you've not been there before, shame on you. Uh, it is located at 311 heelsville Yarra Glen Road, just outside of Healesville. Open Tuesdays to Sundays, 11am to 5pm and open all public holidays, except for Christmas days. You can find out more information at www.twma.com.au and Christopher's book Discovering Dobell, published by Wakefield Press. Uh, it's retailing for $49.95 in all good bookstores and possibly some bad ones as well. Oh, really? <laughs> and (laughs) of course at the show.
7: Indeed you can go out
3: and buy a copy as you uh, peruse or after you peruse the exhibition.
7: You can probably buy an autograph one at the
3: show. Oh okay well all the more reason to go. Christopher thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Joined in the studio now by Asher Trelevin and Gypsy Wood who are performing as their characters Peter and Bambi Heaven in a show called The Magic Inside at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent in Collingwood uh, tomorrow and Saturday. Welcome to you both.
1: Hi. Hi. Great to be here. So, Gypsy,
3: how did this show begin? This is, uh, I mean, creating any kind of comedic or, or performance character is a challenge. But Peter and Bambi, Heaven, I've heard described as uh, what a delusional music, uh, magician and sidekick. But
1: yes, that's exactly right. Uh, Peter Heaven has the ego of um, the size of Australia and he really believes that he is the best entertainer in this country and he's been uh, very lucky to find this young uh, cage dancer in the Gold Coast who's going (laughs) to help him out and she actually turns out to be... A little bit more feisty and a little bit more er- erotic than he would like yeah. on stage. So great, great uh, power a duo there.
8: too much erotic. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I'm starting to see things going horribly wrong from the get-go and uh, I'm already giggling. So that's a good start. Um, Asher, you're best known as a comedian and with a, a bit of a, a physical kind of bent to your skill. Mm-hmm.
8: Why create this character? Well... To be brutally honest, um, I got really bored of my opinions as a stand-up. I got really bored of everything that I was saying. I didn't really feel like I had anything else to talk about. And so when Gypsy pitched this idea to me, and we were married at the time when when she did, I was very reluctant because I was working mainly as a stand-up and really enjoying that work. Um, But since, you know... Taking on this character which is basically a cruise ship nineties magician, hardcore bogan, backcombed massive wigs, borderline drag makeup, <laughs> figure hugging costumes, 160 kilos of gear and bad wigs and stuff whenever we go anywhere. I really love it and I love working with a woman. Basically you know?
1: I've ruined his stand-up career. She's
8: absolutely. <laughs> gone ham on my stand-up career. <laughs> I, I love it. I've always loved working in lots of different comedy platforms. And when something comes to an end, it comes to an end. You know, just go and try something new. And so this for me has been really great. In
3: talking about things coming to an end, uh, am I correct in thinking that your relationship came to an end just before you had to do the, the show for the first time?
1: Yes, our eight-year relationship. We were married for four years, very sadly. And Ended the day before rehearsals. We Literally had just booked this inc- really expensive, amazing director who we love, Cal Crystal, who directed *The Mighty Boosh*, and Asher and I just we just came to that conclusion. Um, we cried all night. Um, we went to rehearsals the next day, my face looked like a puffer fish. (laughs) Um, We didn't tell anyone that we'd split up um, because we just couldn't deal with the emotional trauma of it. Um, And we just kept working it was it was quite um exhilarating you just can't imagine that you can do things like that until you're doing them
3: that's one of the things that fascinates me the fact that you kept working i think uh under those circumstances i would have just said stuff it Cancel the run Cancel the rehearsal room throw them the the money's gone (laughs) i i I can't do that i'd be a, a, a miserable heap you know in a in a dark room for six months or something you two instead went into a rehearsal room and made uh a show which has been praised up and down the UK yeah. and in Australia as
8: well. Yeah, it was quite phenomenal. I don't really know how we managed it. You know, we, we, we jumped in, we rehearsed, we flew back to Australia, we toured five festivals, we did 160 shows in two different continents, we got nominated for a Golden Gibbo, we packed up our house, we moved on, we moved to different countries and then went to Edinburgh and stormed Edinburgh with the show. So it was...
1: And France's Got Talent was in there too. Oh yeah, we did. We did France's Got Talent. <laughs> i, oh, I
8: that's it. I've seen the clips of that,
3: and it's fascinating watching the judges slowly realizing that they what they're watching is satirical and comedic <laughs> rather than <laughs> an, initially. There's a real sense that at the start they just think, "Oh my god, these people take themselves so seriously," and then exactly. they, they begin to realize that what they're watching is parody and pastiche. And oh my god. It, it's, I think it's is almost
8: as entertaining as watching the judges as watching the two of you perform in that instance. Yeah. That was that was very enjoyable. I was really reluctant to do that as well. But.
1: Yeah, basically I've uh, put a lot of emotional blackmail on Ash <laughs> to do a lot of things he didn't want to do that turned out to be fantastic.
8: Yeah.
3: <laughs> what is it about characters like this who, um, for example, well, I guess the the, the fact that um, Peter Heaven um, he thinks he is so much better than he actually is, what is it about watching a character like that kind of fail and struggle and fall apart and what is it about a character like Bambi who is revealed to be much more than she appears to be why create characters like this and why do audiences enjoy them?
8: Well I I think this is, for me I think, I mean this is new territory for me so I'm not going to talk like I'm an expert on why these character dynamics work but you know it is a very classic straight man, funny man act and (laughs) through some weird twist of fate you know, gypsy is the funny man and I'm the straight man in this duo and I think you know part of it is schadenfreude watching things go bad there's a lot of slapstick there's a lot of disaster this is a babushka doll of bad of really like terrible 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 and um, you know you fall in love with how earnest the characters are they want so much to be good they want so much to succeed and that is infectious
1: yeah it's brilliant
3: there's certainly something to delight in uh, in in watching people fail spectacularly, oh, particularly this is. when it's set up to, to create laughter. Talk to us about uh, then about Gypsy knowing where to draw the line.
1: <laughs> um, where to draw the line? Well, I'm, I'm yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know where that line is yet. She I'm, really doesn't. I just want to keep jumping off the cliff. I think y- what we do is set up a really, looks like a family magic show, people really do come thinking, <laughs> I'm just going to see a magic show. And you just see the bizarre, like, <laughs> shock on people's face and it's so enjoyable.
3: Well, having seen you performing uh, as a support act for in More Davies' My Life in the Nude a couple of years ago, for example, I was watching that act and because I knew of you and knew your work, I knew that something... Horrible and strange and very, and wrong is going to happen, and I, I was ta- again taking as much delight in the faces of the people around me. Yeah. I'm not going to say what happens in that act because I don't want to going to give it away. But let's just say it's a, a um, gypsy in a white cheerleader's outfit who has a an accident on stage. Um, but so that sense of wrongness, then, how much does that inform your work generally?
1: Oh, I'm I'm totally um, I- I- totally obsessed with. Um, exploiting things and twisting things and setting things up to look like it's going to be something beautiful and then subverting it that's my um aim as a performance artist and cabaret performer and I think part of coming to the show is being in the audience and watching just everyone's different reactions of like what they thought was happening to what they're experiencing. It's it's really enjoyable. We've had a few people in Perth just turn around and go to their friends, why are they so bad?
8: (laughs) Genuinely thinking... Without a shadow of a doubt, looking at the poster and going, this show looks like an excellent, high-quality magic show for all ages, coming in and going, what is going on? To people
1: being offended and leaving and, you know, talking about that action that I, I've done with more Davey, uh, there was a time in Adelaide where a woman left the Spiegel tent and vomited. She was so um, <laughs> appalled by what happened. <laughs> so, you know, there are reactions all around.
8: But also at the box you had, uh, you know... Matt Damon and Tom Cruise jumping up and down on yeah, their chairs, yeah. losing their mind for yeah. that routine. She's Matt been... Damon loved it. Mm, Matt Damon <laughs> loved it. Chris Hemsworth loved it. Yeah. Ah, so if you want some dancing, if you
3: want some magic, uh, if you want some mime, if you want things going spectacularly and joyfully wrong, then uh, Peter and Bambi Heaven, The Magic Inside, sounds like it might be the show for you. I'm definitely intrigued. I want to see more. Um what happens if parents turn up with their kids thinking it really is a family-friendly kind of magic show?
8: Well, we've got a 15... It's a, it's an M15 cut-off. So if people come with... Like, we would recommend... You know, it it is an M fifteen show, so if your kids are somewhere around that age and you know they don't mind. Children have
1: seen the show and they are okay. uh, Yeah, I
8: was gonna say Scarred for Life?
3: No,
1: not Scarred for Life. Maybe did some strange things around the house. There was a little child that started spitting and she said, That I'm just doing Gypsy and Ash's show. (laughs) <laughs> they had to have a little word with it. But
8: them. it's childish. All of the kind of
1: it's the grotesquery
8: and, and the kind of like and the nudity in the show is very childish. Yeah, it's it's not, not
1: sexually explicit on a very no. adult.
8: It's dumb. It's it, really it's dumb. Silly. And in an age of people being very careful about triggering things which might set a bad example for their children. This is a joyful and stupid thing that you could bring your fifteen year old, fourteen year old kids to and have a great night.
3: Peter and Bambi Heaven, The Magic Inside is on at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent, 35 Johnson Street, Collingwood, on the next door to Circus Oz. Uh, tomorrow night, the 9th of June, and Saturday night, the 10th of June. Doors open at 7.30 and the show kicks off at 8pm. Uh, you can book by going to trybooking.com uh, and uh, you can also go to the Circus Oz Melba Spiegel Tent website and find a booking link from there as well. Thank you both for coming in. It's been fun. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.
0: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia.
3: Back to the visual arts side of the equation. I'm joined in the studio by artists Sam Leach and Kylie Stillman. Welcome to you both. Thank
0: you very much. Thank you.
3: Now, you've both been described as mid-career artists, so people who aren't part of the art world and aren't familiar with art speak. What does mid-career mean? Um... So, well, think you're in a kind of limbo between being young and emerging and old and established,
0: I know what comes next. <laughs>
9: <laughs> yeah, maybe it's uh, well, maybe uh, it's the peak. I'll think of it as the, uh, as, or, or is it a plateau? I'm not sure.
0: I guess if you're technical, um, you're probably past ten years of practice. Like, if you want to put a year on it, because I don't, it's I don't think it's age defined, and I don't think it's you know quality defined, you know, is it by time, is it by, so I guess that's one way of doing it. I do
3: often wonder whether it's a phrase that's been created by funding bodies, just so (laughs) you can like, please tick this box if you are so, but then that becomes kind of a box that you find yourselves sometimes trapped in, and I know, talking from a lot of colleagues in the sector, that there's definitely a sense that there's perhaps not enough support for mid-career artists for example, in terms of funding mentorships, exhibitions and opportunities as well. Would you agree?
9: Um... I mean, I think there's probably not enough support for artists at any phase of their career. Is, is probably how I feel, and I mean, I've had a pretty a pretty good run, um, relatively speaking. I feel, and uh, at the moment things are things are okay. Of course, uh, I would like more, but uh, I don't I don't have any specific complaints really uh, from from my point of view. Um, I think it's I, th- I still think it's actually uh, it's always difficult for emerging artists because there's just um, a lot of people wanting to do things and, and still not that many opportunities. And probably by the time you've made it to, to mid-career, you know, you've survived something of a winning a winnowing out process. Uh, so you, you at least have, you know, perhaps some uh, experience in, in navigating the art world.
0: Yeah, I agree. It is a bit of a ticking of boxes. Um, but it is certainly fairer than putting things into age brackets um, because you can start your career at any point. Um, but it is a nice place to be in. Like it is a bit like, yay, made it to mid-career. <laughs> and and I think that that's what's nice about this show that Sam and I are doing, you know, being in this space is that you've got so much experience already. So you sort of look across the room and you've sort of been through so much already and you've been through all of those sort of facets of the um, emerging... Emerging stage and,
3: and how familiar were the two of you With one another's work Before you were kind of put together By Lyndon Newart Into their their temporary uh, home uh, Domain house
0: Well I was uh, quite familiar with Sam's work um, He's quite well known And it was quite nice to be um, included with Sam, but what was even nicer was when we actually got to meet and to find so many... Ni- you could, I, as soon as I met him, I remember saying to Melinda, the director, going, I can see why you put us together. Like, it was a really nice pairing and a, a good meeting of minds.
9: Yeah, I felt, I felt the same way. I've known uh, Kylie's work for, for a while, but haven't uh, hadn't had a chance to meet her before we were brought together for this, this particular show.
3: So, what is it about? What are the themes that you have in common in your work that are that makes these works uh, the two and uh, and the exhibition? So, it's avian interplanetary is Sam's work, and Kylie's work is the opposite of wild. What are, what kind of shared themes and commonalities and points of reference do they have in common?
0: I guess, in one word, it's nature. Would you say?
9: Yeah, I, I think so. It's. Uh uh, I mean, there's an interest in the in the non-human world and and how and how we relate to it. Um, so, so in a sense, stepping outside a, a purely uh, human um, perspective.
0: Yeah, I think what's also interesting is we both um, study painting, and when you step inside the exhibition, it's not exactly obvious. Um, and we both. Um, probably speaking for Sam but um, we both still deal with painting in a way as an art form and as a way of expressing and as a passion Um, so as well as the content being involved the actual uh, materials that we're using is something that's of great importance to us.
3: Now so the the materiality of the exhibition is something that intrigues me because um, Kylie your piece for example is a uh, it's a, a large installation of a book sculpture Correct, yeah. Uh, so uh, literally walking into the room, people will perhaps first see the material that you have constructed your work from and then start to tease out some of the ideas that are explored in it. Talk to us about... The, the work itself, It's uh, for if people go to artclimatechange.org, uh, the Art Plus Climate Equals Change Festival, which is uh, presenting the work uh, together with Lyndon, you can see uh, an image of the work. So it's a, a, a tree branch carved into a series of paperbacks.
0: Yeah, so the um, exhibition is comprised of three sculptures. Mm-hmm. They're all used books in um, slightly different ways. Um, Two of them are large-scale works that use um, hundreds of books that are stacked, um, I guess to create a wall, um, I term it as a canvas. So I put these books together in a way, and then uh, page by page I cut into them with a scalpel, so I remove a form. The other component of the show are individual books that are shown on, um, instead of plinths, they use music stands as plinths, and they're hand-sewn, and they're presented open so that you can see both the um the front and the inside cover of the books that i've sewn into Um, it's that idea like i was saying earlier with painting instead of working with paint i use these things like cutting into to create shadow or thread which already has a color or dye within it to create these forms Um, the idea being that um you're presented with uh Absences and marks and um, natural forms that are um, just sculptures in their own right and presented in these um, alternate plinths.
3: Yeah. So the piece, uh, local branch, for example, the, the absence there in many ways is the trees that the the books have been made from. Trees cut down, pulped, uh, and so you're, you're you're carving a memorial for a, for an absent forest,
0: perhaps. That's so true. And then playing on the words as well. Um, the title, local branch the books actually all came from a library. The local
3: branch of, So yeah.
0: that idea of de-weeding books or weeding out books from a library. And th- these these have all been through one community. Each page has been turned and left its own little mark as well. And, you know, this big slab of books that's no longer wanted has been used in that way.
3: And Sam, your work, Avian Interplanetary. Tell us a little bit more. This is an installation of paintings and sculptures.
9: Yeah, so there's there's three paintings uh, and a sculpture, and uh, they're installed on a uh, a sort of a ramp structure that's covered with a, a billboard print of the surface of uh, the asteroid Eros, and the. The works come from um, a a collaboration I've had for a while or a conversation I've had for a while with a a, a neuroscientist called uh, Dr Srinivasan up in the Queensland Brain Institute who's doing research in how uh, budgerigars and and bees uh, visually navigate the world and he uses that research to uh, construct uh, sort of semi-autonomous drones that... uh, They're biomimetic drones that use this budgerigar and bee-style navigation to, uh, to guide themselves. And one of the applications of that, of course, is interplanetary exploration. So what I'm interested in is, is how humans can um, use this alternate perspective or this alternate way of seeing from, from the non-human world to kind of find these new territories the so interplanetary. And that's why I've got this this installation, which is this ramp of this asteroid surface, so you can physically walk into this this space and up the surface, off the surface of of earth and onto this asteroid surface using these navigation systems of the of the budgerigars and birds
3: i love the notion of something as every day as a budgie that people may be familiar with as something in a in a childhood home or a cage uh and connecting that with space flight and and space travel
9: yeah yeah exactly i mean i always think when we look at uh, humans kind of going into the into the future, I think you've got to bring these, uh, these non-humans with us. I mean, they just seem like uh, pets or happy things, but no, I mean, you know, it's a really important part of, of the way that we can actually uh, connect with the with the universe as a whole.
3: And there's also then, though, uh, a somewhat more melancholy echoing of the canary in the coal mine, literally <laughs> the bird taken down into the coal mine that would die from poison gas before we do. So, And referencing that to me perhaps in that the way that we are... Killing the natural world, and we're not paying attention to the fact that things are dying off. Totally,
9: yeah, 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 exactly. And that's, I mean, you know, that's probably the main reason why we need to uh, get into the interplanetary exploration because we've uh, we've messed up this one.
3: Hopefully, we don't mess up the next planet we're going to migrate to. Uh, for both of you, how important is it to to feel through your art connected to a natural world that we're often distanced from in our everyday urban lives?
0: Well, I guess it's, um, it's just an intuitive way of working for me. It's not something I do consciously um, and it's not something that feels artificial in any way. It's just um, the way that I... Um, I guess, in one way, it's something I celebrate in an aesthetic that I'm attracted to. And I, I think that this... Um, in this exhibition calling it Opposite of Wild is actually playing on that. This idea of Opposite of Wild to me is actually an idea of being calculated and I've been thinking about what I am attracted to and why I love the idea of a branch why I love seeing the visual of a bird birds in flight all the Um, skeleton of a leaf. And it's that these things are not the usual things that you think about of nature being wild, but these are actually calculated things that are helping these, um, these systems to survive. And then in doing that, I was actually making me think about myself as a practitioner and that um, the idea of an artist is often considered to be wild and free and spontaneous. But it's, uh, it's not the case. <laughs> it's, um, I'm calculated and I'm strategic and I plan everything.
3: So very, you, it's a conscious approach to work rather than... Because um, you said intuitive it has before. To be. yeah.
0: It has to be. And it's how, how do you get 500 books to stand up? and not topple over? <laughs> How do you get them to be in your studio, work on them in a certain way, then get them in a truck and into a gallery? How do you do these things? You have to plan them. But what I love is that you may still walk into the space and you get this feeling of spontaneity, this feeling that I have just, you know, um, waved a magic wand and put all these things together without having to see all of the um, the internal mechanisms that, that, that make it happen.
9: Uh, yeah, I think that's... Uh, I mean the feelings. The feelings are kind of crucial for me. I'm, um, I mean, I'm just interested in science, and so I read sort of the popular science journals and also a ton of science fiction, um, and that's just that's just my personal passion. So of course those are the things that that then inform my work. But as I as I'm making the work, I'm always uh, interested in um, finding a way to get the feeling to be the first thing that comes across. So rather than You know, sort of a didactic explanation of what's going on in scientific experiments, or or the particular things. Even though that stuff is all in the work, Mm -hmm. the first thing should be a more um, a more felt response. It's uh, it's establishing a line of uh, empathetic communication, and. uh, what I you know ultimately what I would love to think is if I'm if I'm thinking about how non-humans see the world maybe that's tapping into some uh, deeper level of truth or a deeper level of reality that, that we share just beyond the sort of normal um, conscious rational human way of looking at things
3: when audiences come to, to look at their work do you want them to look at it consciously or do you want them to surrender themselves and, and try and respond to it and this is I guess a, a question for both of you do you want them to to respond to it Um uh, Automatically, or or uh, intellectually, or do you want them to, to just sit and and respond to a deeper feeling?
9: I, I mean, for me, I, I I like the idea of an encounter that unfolds over time. And I mean, obviously, not everyone going into a show is going to spend a lot of time with the work. Some people just come and have a glance around and, and leave. But uh, I like the idea that there are layers, so that if you spend some time, you can you can go into. Uh, more and more, uh, more and more facets of the work, uh, and one of the things I'm interested in, for example, with building this ramp, is you can create an environment where people are um, like physically physically put into a different configuration, and that's going to alter the way that they that they look around the, look around the world. Um, so they automatically have this uh, change in change in their perception as they're, as they're contemplating a work, and hopefully that'll give a new a new kind of kind of perspective. Um, so i don't I don't sort of have a particular way that I, I like to people to look at the work, but I like to have the the possibility for these these multiple types of engagement.
0: Um, I like work to feel accessible and I like the idea that someone can walk in and feel if um, art art seems overly hierarchical or out of their reach that they can see things that are ordinary and everyday and that beauty can be made from them. Um, I had a, a woman at the opening who just she wanted to hug me and I just thought that was a really nice response and I don't know what that meant it just maybe it was just a really familiar feeling that she had when she saw the work and a familiar feeling that she had about me so I think there's a lot of really nice personal responses and ideas about what it means to be a creator and what it means to have ideas and what I love most of all that someone walks into the room and feels intelligent because they're seeing something in it that makes them think and feel yeah, feel something a bit more than you would ordinarily.
3: It's interesting in my line of work as, a, as an arts commentator and critic and writer and so forth, the, the work that I enjoy the most is the work that I have an emotional response to. I, I can have an intellectual response and that's great, but when a work makes me feel and moves me that's for me is perhaps the says to me that the work is truly successful because it's working on multiple levels on a on a deeply personal one and on an intellectual one. So I love the idea of a response So I'm going, I just want to hug you. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Sam Leach's work Avian Interplanetary and Kylie Stillman's work The Opposite of Wild are presented by Linden New Art at Domain House in the Melbourne Gardens uh, because Linden is closed for renovations at the moment. Is that right?
9: Their their permanent home in St Kilda is uh, yeah being, being renovated. They've got some uh, pretty ambitious plans down there it looks it looks pretty good. Oh, have you have seen the plans? you I have what's going I've had on? a uh, sneak a sneak preview. Give, us <laughs> give <us the> <laughs> Well, all I can say is that they'll have uh some uh increased exhibition spaces and the whole thing the whole thing looks uh pretty awesome actually.
0: I right. think there's some issues about accessibility too that is is going to be addressed, which is uh, nice Great. to hear. Yeah,
9: good. But it was pretty exciting in the in the new residence in Domain House because of course that used to be the old yeah. home of Acker, uh, which oh, of course! Back in the day, back yeah. in the day, and I used to go to a lot of shows down there. So it was really exciting to be able to put on some work in that uh, in that hallowed ground. So
3: if you don't know Domain House, it's uh, in Dallas Brooks Drive, South Yarra. So it's just near the uh, what the, the you could you could go for a run around the tan and pop in and look at some work or if you're on your way to uh, the, um, the the memorial up there or to the, uh, the Royal Botanic Gardens for a picnic, pop in and see uh, Sam's work and Kylie's work at Domain House on until Sunday the 6th of August, open Tuesdays to Sundays, 11am to 4pm, Wednesdays 11am till 8pm, closed on public holidays. Sam and Kylie, thank you both for joining us here
7: at Triple R.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
7: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
3: And my final guest for the morning has joined us in the studio. Actor Bridget Gallagher is here to talk about She Said Theatre's Salt, which is on at the La Mama Courthouse in Drummond Street, Carlton. As always, because this is a La Mama uh, uh, show, uh, I need to uh, give my traditional disclaimer. I'm on the Committee of Management at La Mama. I'm a volunteer there. I do not benefit financially from promoting shows that are on at La Mama. (laughs) I probably don't have to say that every time, but I always feel like I should. Yeah. So, yeah. How you going? I'm good. Good, thank you. Now uh, you had your first preview last night. We did. How How are you feeling this morning? Because previews are, can either be terrifying because you go, "Oh my god, things are falling apart. It's never going <laughs> to be ready. We have to stop halfway through," and, and and or they can there can be a real sense of it's clicking together.
2: Um, well, it was actually it was terrific to have a preview because there's a lot of um, direct address in the play. So there's three actors in it. I'm, I'm one of them. <laughs> and um, we talk to the audience quite a lot as a convention in the play. So it was great yep. to actually have an audience to talk to. And, and they were lovely and it was really, um, it really changed a lot of what we're doing because it's very different to have someone to
3: talk to. How hard is it then in the, the rehearsal room to to be doing that direct address and to not have anybody to respond to or react to?
2: Yeah, it's quite interesting. It, it, it You kind of end up in kind of doing it in the same kind of way in rehearsal because you're doing it to a wall most of the time. And so it's like, you know, when you have an audience, you have a different actor to work with every night because it's a big beast of lots of people who have been kind enough to come and, you know, they're going to respond differently to you every night. So it's kind of like, you know, you're going to work with... It's like working with a different actor every night.
3: And I would imagine that the audience response is going to be perhaps particularly significant for for this work, Salt, because... um, uh, just a, a quick look at the blurb about it. It's about a uh, uh, an up and coming child star and uh, being partnered with a beloved comedic icon, older male. And yes, you don't have to kind of pay much more than a cursory um, uh, look at entertainment and the media over the last few years to know that. What that story
2: might be. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you can
3: start reading between the lines fairly
0: quickly.
2: Yeah, that's right. Well, in our one, it is fictitious, and but we've set it um, in Australia in the 90s on a sitcom. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you can kind of get, gauge where it's been inspired.
3: <laughs> There's a particular TV program, the name of which I'm not going to mention.
2: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah.
3: So, it's... Is this written uh, to provoke, to explore? what's the, the?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think it's kind of the what the play seems to do, I think, is um show the insidious nature of how these things occur. You know it's not just one event where one person did one thing, there's an entire system in place that has put that child in that position. And you know it's very different now, like there's legislation now that's different about the way that children work in them. Um, uh, in the um entertainment industry um but yeah i think the play just takes a look at all the all of the things that build to that point that put a kid in a in an adult position they shouldn't be in
6: mm mm-hmm.
3: Uh, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's going to be a comfortable piece of theatre.
2: No, well, no, it's quite uncomfortable in lots of ways, but it is um, very entertaining and a lot of fun, and there's lots of glittery, nice kind of sitcomy bits as well. So, yeah.
3: So it, it's not, it's it's not going heavy. to be a, a barrage <laughs> of unrelenting no, misery. No, no, yeah. no, definitely not. But nonetheless, something that can occasionally pull back the curtain and Absolutely. say, "Here's what's happening backstage." Yeah,
2: that's kind of something that came up a lot in rehearsal. The idea of the you know the Wizard of Oz, you know, pulling back the curtain and then it's just that guy. You know, that's kind of one of the things we're going with in this play as well.
3: So for people who aren't familiar with uh, She Said Theatre as a company, tell us a little bit more.
2: Uh, uh, she Said Theatre is a company run by Penny Harpam and Sienna Van Helton. Um, so Penny has directed this show and Sienna's written it. Um, this is their sixth th- sixth show that they've done as the company. Um, they do new work. Uh, they support new Australian work. Um, they're like very much a text-based kind of theatre company and a part of their ethos is to employ um, a majority of women in creative roles um, and support women in creative roles who otherwise might not get the opportunity
3: yeah, now one of their works I know recently was on up in Sydney, which yeah. I was delighted. I wish I could have got up to see it. <laughs> Me too. Because yeah. That notion, the 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 independent sector in Melbourne, the independent sector in in Sydney, and in other cities, seemed often a little self contained and isolated world. So to see kind of more interplay between them would have been great.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that's terrific as well. Sometimes it feels like we're our own little island over here of independent theatre. So, yeah, I think they're planning to f- for fallen to
3: have some more life actually. So great. Okay. Eyes out for yeah. that if it uh, maybe it'll come to town. Mm. But um, to, to come back to Salt, um, tell us about your role in the piece. Well,
2: I'm kind of an in between. So uh, I play Sam. Uh, she is the Bobby Salt is the you know k- kids entertainer guy. Uh, I'm his biological daughter, um, but I don't know him until I'm in my early teens. Anyway, through him, I get I end up working in the television industry, and I end up being the chaperone and um, and carer for the kid as well as his manager as well as being a producer of the show so (laughs) i'm a part of the whole deal
5: so
3: uh, in the background kind of of in it, quite deep
2: yes and um, a lot of responsibility on some shoulders that might not be able to hold it
3: now given the the themes of this show i'm assuming that you haven't cast well that the the company haven't cast an actual child as the child star
2: no she's a grown-up yeah she's a grown woman um Playing a very convincing child. She has to play her from over many ages. Um, so Artemis Ioannides is the actress. Yeah, she's terrific.
3: Um, have you had much to do with the company previous to this production?
2: No, I've never worked with them. No. Um, you know, I've known them around The Traps and they're friends of mine and, I, you know, I support their work. In
3: that interconnected Melbourne theatre yeah, way. Yeah, exactly,
2: yeah. yeah we su- support one another. So, um, yeah, I did a read for this play a long time ago um, just to kind of help out dramaturgically and then kind of accidentally ended up in it.
3: How, <laughs> how much has it changed since that early reading? Um,
2: the the, stru- the the main basis of why it was written hasn't changed. It was, it's just been um, just kind of shaped... Uh, um, over over the course of rehearsal as new players often are in rehearsals, you know, dramaturgically. So now it's just a much more kind of structured and all the ideas are much more solid.
3: Yeah. One of the things that fascinates me about that the creation of a new piece of theatre is the opportunity f- for an, for uh, yourself as an actor, the other actors and other people involved to help shape the work as well. Because yeah. Because I, I think sometimes... People may think of playwriting as the playwright sits in their lonely garret, types out <laughs> the work, and presents it presents a finished thing, a finished yeah. object. Where, whereas it's so much more uh, organic than that.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you all kind of become theatre makers, really, because everyone is um, is allowed to contribute to what the product is in the end. So you know, I, we were all very much invited to be a part of that process um, by Penny and Sienna. You know, and they're really terrific with all of that. So. Yeah, um, Artemis and Scott and I contributed quite a bit to... Like from our point of view of the characters really because that's our job. Yeah. (laughs) yeah.
3: And how does that work? Is it a process of saying I don't think my character would say that, I think they would say this or...?
2: No, I think it's just more of a... Like you become the micromanager of your own character really so you pick up on tiny inconsistencies that possibly wouldn't be noticed otherwise. Um, It's not about my character wouldn't say that because if you write it down then they say it and it's your job to make them say it. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, sometimes there'll be little kind of things that don't match up so you say one thing and then say another and then you can point out that that doesn't quite make sense or you know little things like that that in the end smooth out the whole thing
3: and what about where does the actor's ego come into play in that process then if you're trying to say gently hint that you should have more lines in another scene i
2: usually hint that i should have less (laughs) i don't know what that means um No, I don't know if the... the, I mean, like, ideally the ego doesn't come into it. You know, you should leave it at the door every time you enter a rehearsal room, I think. Otherwise you can't really work very well. So, yeah, I mean, mean, that's like in an ideal world. I'm pretty sure that's, you know, what happened with us that, you know, felt very organic in that kind of way. Um, Yeah.
3: And presumably that organic process then also means that a work like Salt, which is opening tonight at uh, La Mama Courthouse... um, can be crafted in such a way to ensure that it has the right tone the right weight and when it needs to 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 hit hard it can do so because it multiple people have helped shape its focus and direction
2: yeah absolutely and it's also um as important to know when to when to lighten it up and alleviate that and when when to have kind of moments of brightness and when to have moments of darkness and when you do that all together as a company it's always going to be stronger
3: Salt is a new production from She Said Theatre. You may have seen the company's uh, production Heart, for example, or uh, Bock Kills Her Father. Heart, currently touring Victoria, I think. Still got a yeah. few I think dates left. they just left. did
2: a hundred shows or something. hundredth show. It's the show yeah. that
3: will not die, yeah. which is a great thing. It's um, So it's a new work that turns the spotlight back on the entertainment industry and asks, what are we feeding our children and whose appetite is really to blame? Written by Sienna Van Helten, directed by Penny Harpham on at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre, located at 349 Drummond Street, Carlton, Wednesdays to Saturdays, 7 30 pm, Sundays at 4 pm. Runs for about 90 minutes. You can book at lamama.com.au. Opening tonight, and uh, then off it goes. Bridget Chookers for tonight. Thank you very much. And uh, I've just realised at this point that I don't have another track queued up, so I'm going to get you mm-hmm. to uh, tell me what you're doing next after oh, this production while well, I very this, professionally I start, queue up a new. I I start
2: rehearsal on Monday for a new show. I'm doing Merciless Gods with Little Ones Theatre, which is based on Christ- Christos Chalkas' novel Merciless Gods, which is a short story novel. And it's been adapted for the stage by Dan Givanoni and it's directed by Stephen Nicolazzo and it's going to be on in Northcote Town Hall at the end of July, start of August.
3: I'm really delighted to, to see that production uh, because when it was first announced, it was on up in for Griffin Independent in yeah, Sydney. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're I doing like, it
2: at the end of the year, yeah. What do you mean Griffin get it before <laughs> we do?
3: So I'm, no, yeah. great. Melbourne well, first. Great. Yeah. I may well have you or some of the other team uh, from that back in the studio probably. soon to talk
0: about yeah, that Yeah, probably
3: one.
0: see you soon. <laughs> this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.com org.au